Well, if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to the New Testament book of Mark, chapter 5. And we're going to be looking at verses 21 to 43, where if this is your first um, Sunday here at Windsor Road. We're glad you're here. It's Dad's weekend, and uh, families, we're just so happy that you're here uh, with us. Um, and you'll find Mark chapter 5 on page 710 of your church Bibles, the navy blue Bibles in the pouch in front of you. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own and you'd like just to take one of the navy blue Bibles, please feel free to do that. But we're studying through Mark's Gospel, and uh, we're going to be talking about pressing through with enduring faith this morning. And so uh, I'm going to begin reading in Mark chapter 5, uh, verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came here, came there rather. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately. Her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciple answers, and and yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore, ignoring What they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him after he put them all out. He took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. 
This is God's word. Well, some of us can relate to these verses, can't we? We can identify with the desperation. Desperation for God to heal our children. Desperation for God to heal us. And perhaps some of us are still feeling the desperation from a healing that didn't happen on time. If only the cure had come on time. If only the diagnosis had been determined on time. If only the donor organ had come on time. If only, if only. And yet in, in our desperate and if only world and in Mark 5, the desperate if only world, these verses here challenge us and they push us. And they're calling us because in these verses, Jesus is calling us to trust him when all indications say otherwise. And so what do you do? What do you do when you are asked to trust Christ in a way that seems contrary to everything reasonable? What do you do? If you took away every visible, observable reason to trust Christ, would you? Well, Jesus had gone across the Sea of Galilee. He's kind of on this Jack Bauer power trip that's happening, you know? He crossed the lake. There was this furious squall, this storm that hit at night, and the disciples are in deep fear. Jesus was in deep rim. He's asleep there in the boat on the cushion, Peter says in his recollection, and and they panic, and they're afraid, and they Ask Jesus, don't you care about us? We're going down, and why don't you do something? And whatever it was they were expecting him to do, I don't think they expected him to, in two words, calm the storm and calm the sea. So that it was like, I mean, it was just, they were, one minute they were up and down, chopping and going down, and the next minute it was as smooth as glass. Who is this? This one who is Lord of the storm. And then they get to the other side, and the moment they step foot uh, on land, they are, uh, you know, they're accosted by this, by this, this, this demon-infested, naked, bleeding, yelling guy. <laughs> but the Lord of the storm is also the Lord of the legion of demons. And he exercises these demons out of this man so that at the end he was in his right mind fully dressed as if nothing had happened. And those demons infest those pigs and they take a permanent swim in the lake. Who is this? Who is this? Who is this? The Lord of the storm is the Lord of the demons. And so they're back in the boat. And then they get to the other side where they had originally left. And it's like the crowds are waiting for them. He's come back. And they've mobbed him there. He's there at the lake. And 
We don't know who all is in the crowd. We just know it's a crowd and they've nodded themselves around him. We do know the name of one person in the crowd. That tells you how much clout he had. His name is Jairus. Mark identifies him as one of the rulers of the synagogue. And what that means is this. He's not a rabbi. He's more like a lay leader. His job is to help give oversight over the doctrine and the teaching that goes on in the spiritual community of the synagogue. And and if a particular synagogue did not happen to have uh, the scrolls of the Torah, it would have been his responsibility as the ruler of the synagogue to procure those scrolls. And he would also have input in terms of the order of worship. And uh, he would uh, help out with the ministry of prayer in the synagogue community. And even if it meant the upkeep of the facilities of the synagogue that would fall on his plate too, Jairus. His title associates him with the religious establishment of the day, the scribes and the Pharisees who were very wary of Jesus. In fact, it would have been on Jairus' radar, Mark chapter 3, verse 6, when the Pharisees went in league with the Herodians in a plot to destroy Jesus. He would have known about that. And yet here he is, a part of the establishment, here he is, and why? Because he had a little girl, that's why. And Luke's gospel tells us it was his only little girl. And both gospels tell us that she's very, very sick. Her situation is critical. She is sinking fast. And this put Jairus in a place where he had never been before. Never before. You see, Jairus had a position. Jairus had a title. Jairus had responsibilities. Jairus had uh, resources. But now they mean absolutely nothing to him. He'd always been strong, but he he didn't know how to be weak. He told the synagogue congregation, everything's going to be okay, all is well, God's in control. He was trying to tell everybody, except himself. But then he hears that Jesus is on the scene. And you know, there comes a point in life where where your desperation rises above your dignity. And you just are going to do whatever it takes. That's what he was about for his little girl. This this prominent religious leader who's allied with the very establishment who wanted Christ dead. This prominent leader has a little girl who is almost dead herself. And this avalanche of pressure and stress and worry causes Jairus to just simply collapse before the feet of Christ in verse 23. He just begs Jesus, please, my daughter, she's dying. Come to my house. Put your hands on her so that she will live. Help me. Help me. Sometimes I have conversations with you either out in the foyer or up here after church or even in my office. I've had conversations with our church family and uh, conversations about your prayer life. Some of you feel it, you know, you're, you're frustrated about your prayer life because you feel like that, that you know, all you, all you feel like you ever do when you pray 
is you just talk about what you need. You know, I just feel, Randy, you say, you know, I just, all, whenever I talk to God, I just, I, all I do is just talk about what I need. And, 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 and to the degree that, you know, you, some of you just kind of stop praying because you feel so guilty. And, you, and I just hate it when I come across to God so needy. And, and then, then here's what some have said. Randy, I just, I just want to be the kind of worshiper who isn't always so desperate. And my response is this. There are no other kind of worshipers. There really aren't. And I understand what, I understand what you're saying because there are, there are other dimensions and levels of prayer that, that deal with uh, uh, expressions of gratitude and thanksgiving and prayer on behalf of others and, or just simply being silent before a holy God. I understand that. But you know what? Anybody who comes to Christ and everybody who comes to Christ does so out of desperation, comes, does so out of desperate need, desperate circumstances, circumstances regarding your health, circumstances regarding your finances, your marriage, your hurts, the desperation of feeling separate from God or distant from him. Maybe you're here today and you feel that. I just don't, I, you know, I want to be close to God. I don't feel close to God And there's an ache in your heart. And I want to tell you, God welcomes you when you come to him. He welcomes you when you come to him. So bring to him whatever it is you have with you. The Apostle Paul tells us this in Philippians 4, 7 and 8. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything... By prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. In everything, Paul says, in everything. Now, I've studied Greek in undergraduate school, in graduate school, in my doctoral program. And that word, I know, I think I've become an expert about that phrase in Philippians 4, 7, in everything. And here is what it means. It means this. It means in everything. Come to him with what's on your plate because he knows what you need before you ask. He never turns away from us when we come to him. And that's why I love verse 24. It's so clean. So Jesus went with him. Wherever it was Jesus was going, and whatever it was Jesus was going to do, plans changed because Jairus came in his death situation. And so they are on their way. And it's still, the crowd hasn't gone away. They're there, inching their way toward Jairus' home. And this is where we learn that Jairus is not the only person desperate for Christ. Mark tells us in his gospel, verse 25, a woman was there. We don't even know her name. We don't even know her name. That's how much clout she had. We know Jairus. We know his position. We know his title. We know his responsibilities. We know his reputation, but not her. In fact, her only identification is her medical chart. She's a nameless person who has suffered since the birth of Jairus' little girl, 
12 years earlier, right about the time Jairus' little girl was born, her disease began. A loss of blood, some sort of uterine hemorrhage, no doubt. And she's tried it all. She's tried the medicine. She's tried the alternative therapy. She's fasted. She's prayed. She's gone to a healing center. She's done that all. She's done all that medicine in that day could do. And Mark ironically tells her that she has not only suffered from her disease, but she has suffered from the cures that the physicians have tried to give her. She grew worse, and she was broke. And she's spiritually and ceremonially unclean. That's what happens when you get what she had. She wasn't much better than a leper, which means this, which means this. No one has touched her in 12 years, or no one was supposed to touch her. No one has hugged her in 12 years. No one has held her hand to pray for her in 12 years. She's not supposed to be in crowds. She's not allowed to go to the temple. She's not allowed to be in a worship gathering like this. She's not allowed to go to the synagogue. She eats alone, she worships alone, she lives alone. She's no husband, no children, no money, no church, no community group, no hope. And yet she heard that Jesus was near, and so she pressed through to him. She thought, I don't need, I don't need him to touch me, I just need to touch him. I, I, in fact, I don't even need to touch him. I just need to touch the, the hem of his robe. If I can just touch his clothes, just a hem, if I can just get to his robe, and the crowd is thick, and she's behind Jesus, and for a split second, there was an opening, and she knifed her way through the crowd, and she lunged and barely grazed the hem of his robe, and that church family is what we call faith. Faith is active trust. Faith is, faith is pressing your way to Jesus. Pressing your way to Jesus. Anybody having a hard time with that lately? What's preventing us from that? What's, what's preventing us from pressing through to Christ? What is it? What, what gets in the way of our faith? Six months of bad finances? A sick child? A rebellious child? A colleague at work or a teacher at school who has singled you out and mocked your faith? Is it too much traffic? Is it a flat tire? Is someone polished off your box of cereal? Is that what it is? Sometimes it doesn't take much, does it? Am I pressing through the crowd to Christ? How am I pressing through? Yes, life is hard. Yes, there are obstacles. Yes, it's frustrating. Still, she did not surrender her certainty that Christ was her hope, and neither should we. And I love verse 29. It begins with the word immediately. Immediately. 12 years of bleeding, 12 years of torment, 
12 years of being an outcast. 12 years of not being allowed to worship with her family. 12 years, immediately, she felt in her body that she was healed of her scourge, of her whip, of her disease. Immediately. And now she could go home. Now she could just return home unnoticed. That's what she thought. That's when something happened. Immediately, she was healed, and immediately, Jesus stopped. He turned about. He looked at the crowd. Someone touched me. Someone touched me. Who touched me? Power has gone out from me. And the disciples, Luke's gospel tells us it was Peter who touched you. Why is he saying that? We're in a crowd. We're in a crowd. What are you talking about? There's people all over. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Captain Obvious. Yes, you're in a crowd. Yes, yes, you are in a crowd. But here's the deal. Jesus can always tell the casual jostling of the crowd versus the purposeful tug of faith. Someone touched me. I want to know who, and I'm not going anywhere until I find out who touched me. So this woman who had been persistent in pressing through to Christ, well, now Christ himself is persistent in his search for who it was who touched him. She had come for a cure. Jesus wants a personal encounter. You see, in the kingdom of God, miracle always leads to meeting, always. The discipleship, being a Christian, is not just about getting our needs met. It's about being in the presence of the Lord. It's being known by him and following him. And finally, the pressure's just too much for her, you know. This dear woman just falls out of the crowd on a heap, on her knees. She confesses it all. She confesses it all. Verse 33 says, she told him the whole truth, which in our vernacular would be, she told him the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help her God. And after she spoke, Jesus responded, and he called her daughter. See, she didn't have a gyrus. So Jesus says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Your faith has healed you. And and when he said that, what he means is her faith in him, her faith in Christ. You see, the, the, the most radical and desperate faith is only as good as its object. Yeah. Christianity, Christianity is not about faith in faith, okay? <laughs> because, look, faith is not your savior. It wasn't faith that was born at Bethlehem. It wasn't faith that died on the cross. It wasn't faith that loved us and gave itself for us. It wasn't faith that bore our sins in its body on the tree. It wasn't faith that died and rose again for our sins, Faith is one thing. The Savior is another. And she has put her faith in him. And so Jesus publicly outs her. 
Because he wants her to know something. He wants her to know something and he wants the crowd to know something. Here's what he wants her to know. He wants her to know who healed her. He wants her to know there wasn't a power that healed her. There was a person. And he wants her to know that her healing came not because of what she took, but because of what he gave. That's what he wants her to know. And Jesus wants the crowd to know something too. He wants the crowd to know that in fact, she was clean. In fact, she was totally healed. And so from now on, she can fully participate in her community. From now on, People can hold her hand and pray for her. And from now on, she can hold their hand and pray for them. And she can hold a baby. She hadn't held a baby in 12 years. She can attend the congregation of God's people. She can worship in a room like this as, um, from among the church family. And if she wants to, she can get married. And if she's physically able, she can have children. She can become a mother. Her whole life immediately has been radically, instantly changed by that power that is unleashed through her faith in Christ. And that's why she's a portrait and a picture of salvation for all of us. And that's why Jesus says, go in peace. You now have a peace that you've never had. Go in peace and be freed from your scourge, from your suffering. And everybody was so amazed at this. Everybody? Jairus is still there. Oh, he's trying to get Jesus to his little girl and he's stuck in traffic. The mob is there, the clock is ticking, Jesus gets... You know, to him interrupted by this situation and and it's just, come on. And just when Christ put this woman's life together, Jairus' life fell apart, right? Some people at the house show up. Verse 35, Jairus, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher any more? And he wasn't even able to be there when she died. You know, as a daddy, don't you want to be there in the last moments of your little girl's life? Don't you want to be there kissing your daughter on her forehead, holding her, crying, weeping, telling her that you love her, telling her that you're grateful to God for all the years that he gave her to you, telling her that she was a joy, telling her that she was a delight? Don't you want to be there to say your goodbyes? And he wasn't. He wasn't able to be there. And it's not because he didn't love her. It's because he couldn't get to her. But Jesus protested. Looking Jairus in the eyes. Don't be afraid. Just believe. And that's in the present tense. Keep believing. Keep believing. What's Jesus mean by that? What's the point at this point? How's Jairus to understand what it is Jesus is telling him? Well, I mean, what what kind of faith, what kind of faith does Jesus want Jairus to have? The kind of faith that the woman had. A faith that presses on. A faith that persists even when all reason 
says otherwise. Jesus is calling Jairus to a faith that knows no limits, not even the raising of a dead child. And so this delay has become a lesson for the leader of the synagogue, Jairus, Jesus is saying. I know you're educated. I know you're a leader. I know you've got credentials. I know, but this no-name woman has something to teach you about the nature of faith. Are you willing to learn? Will the prominent, well-known synagogue ruler learn from an anonymous, unclean, impoverished woman? So Jesus took him, and he took along Peter, James, and John. Verse 38 says they get to the house, and there were mourners there. There was a commotion of mourners there. And what that means is there were professional mourners there. In their culture, uh, when a loved one passed away, uh, the patriarch would actually hire mourners And it was in their culture. And so they would sing and wail and cry. And there were instruments. And it was quite an ordeal. And it was quite a commotion. And uh, uh, in verse 39, Jesus comes on the scene. And he says, why are you crying? She's not dead. She's just asleep. And it's like, you know, they're in the middle of their refrain. And they gasp, break out laughter. What? And Jesus just clears the place. All right, out you go. Out you go. Thank you. Appreciate the music. Okay, tune up the instrument next time. Let's go, let's go. Come on, let's go. Out, 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 out. And, and then he says, you know, Jairus, with me. Jairus, get your wife, okay? And then he says to the three disciples, Larry, Mo, Curly, come with me. Let's go. <laughs> and they enter the room. And there she was. There she was. And verse 41 is so simply put. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum. Dear child, rise. Rise. Dear child, is a term of endearment. We would say, sweetheart. Sweetheart, it's time to get up. It's time to get up. And she opens her eyes. And who is the first person she sees? What's the first voice she hears? What's the first touch she feels? Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And that is a picture of our future resurrection. You see, elsewhere in Scripture, there will come a day which the Scripture calls the day. The day. On the day, our mortal bodies will be transformed into immortal bodies. On the day, our corruptible bodies will become incorruptible. Our temporal bodies on the day will become eternal bodies. And those in Christ will see the face of Christ, hear the voice of Christ, and feel the touch of Christ. And he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And we will be with him forever. And the first day 
will be on the day. The day. And at once she got up. And at, at once she was walking. And at once they were astonished. And Jesus told them, Say nothing of this. And why? Well, the miracle's going to speak for itself. Everyone knew that she was dead before Jesus walked in the room, and now she's walking about outside that room throughout the house. And then I love this little detail. It's just a small little detail that closes this, this scene on this account. It's, and this is why I believe that it's an eyewitness account, you know? Jesus says, oh, give her something to eat. She's been dead. Feed her. (laughs) Two people. Two people from two totally different walks in life. They had nothing in common. Nothing. One was male, the other female. One was a somebody, the other was a nobody. One had the clout to summon Jesus to his house. The other had no clout whatsoever. One approached Jesus face to face. The other had to kind of sneak up from behind. One was the epitome of religious purity, and the other was the epitome of religious impurity. The only thing that they had in common was that both were in such desperate straits without Christ, they were without hope. And Jairus had the advantage in every way except the one way that matters most. And it is this anonymous woman who shows faith and shows Jairus and us the kind of faith that pleases God, a faith that presses through to Jesus and so In this respect, their roles are reversed. Now she becomes the teacher. She becomes the leader. And Jairus becomes the learner. Jairus, whose name means he awakens. Jairus learns from this anonymous woman what it means to trust Christ. Who is Jesus? Oh, he's Lord of the storm. That's who he is. Who is Jesus? He's Lord of the demons. Who is Jesus? He's Lord of any and every disease. And who is Jesus? He's Lord of death. That's who he is. And that's why you can trust him. And later on in Mark's gospel we will learn this about our Lord. We will learn later on in Mark's gospel that more than just power will drain from Jesus. On the cross, blood will drain from him. On the cross, Christ will lose his father's hand so that in his death, burial, and resurrection, by grace through faith, his Father will take hold of ours. On the cross, Christ will be unclean. On the cross, Christ will be abandoned. On the cross, Christ will be put outside the city, outside the community, 
Jesus will be put in the tomb so that we can be raised out of it on the day. So don't be afraid. Just believe. Johnny Erickson Tata is a, just a God-fearing Christian woman who was paralyzed from the neck down in a terrible accident when she was 18. Um, she remains a quadriplegic in a wheelchair. And she wrote that one time she was in a meeting where the leader of that meeting said to the group, let's pray and let's just not pray, but let's kneel to pray. Let's kneel before God to pray. And so, you know, everybody around her knelt down, but of course she couldn't and she just thought, well, I'm never gonna be able to kneel before God. And I mean, she just burst into tears. But then she wrote this. Then I remembered the resurrection. Then I remembered the wedding feast of the Lamb. Then I remembered the day. The day. And the first thing I plan to do on the day with my resurrected legs is to drop down on grateful, glorified knees and kneel quietly before the feet of Jesus. And then I'm going to be on my feet dancing. She wrote, can you imagine the hope the hope that this gives to someone with a spinal cord injury like mine, can you imagine the hope that it gives to anyone who has struggled with mental illness? No other religion, no other faith promises new bodies, new heavens and a new earth and new material universe. Only in the gospel do hurting people like me find such enormous hope to live. And so Jesus says... Don't be afraid. Just believe.